God, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you that you have allowed us to gather in this way here in your church, both in person and virtually online. We thank you, God, for this community called Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, which you have had your hand on for over 30 years. We see your faithfulness all over this place, and we praise you for it. I pray now, God, that you would quiet our hearts before you. We have worshipped you. We have given you our worship and our praise, and now we look to hear a word from you. And so I pray that you would speak clearly in this moment. I pray that you would um, open our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our ears to receive what it is that you have for us. I pray that you would soften our hearts before you, that the truth of your gospel might enter in. We need you, God. We need you. And we love you. We want to love you more. Help us to. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let's say thanks one more time to the band from Maranatha. They have been an incredible blessing to us in this season. Um, all right, before I get into the sermon, this is an announcement-heavy day, so I apologize, but I got just a couple more things I, wanted, I need to bring before you, uh, both of which I think are very exciting announcements. So the first one is this. Uh, some of you know Junior Tagata. He has been helping us, helping lead worship uh, for us in this season. Yep. And I, uh, just, the timing just didn't work out to make this announcement while on a Sunday that he was here. But he has graciously agreed to come on as our interim worship director for this season at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. So that is a direct answer to prayer. Um, he's got commitments some other places, so a couple times a month he won't be able to be here, but we'll continue to find, uh, he'll help us fill in when he's not here. So he's going to help bridge the gap in this season while we look and seek God's direction for a more full-time, long-term worship leader. And this is what I think is really exciting about what Junior is going to help us with, is he's going to lead worship on Sundays, but he is also going to help us begin to build up and identify a worship team internally here from our church. So that's, I think that's super exciting. Uh, and I just want to give you the heads up on that, um, that in the coming weeks and months, we will start getting some information out uh, to where if you have a gifting in the areas of playing an instrument or singing and feel like God might be calling you to be part of a worship team here at ALCF, uh, we're going to start putting the mechanisms in place to start building up a team like that. Um, so uh, if, if, if that like piques your curiosity, you know, start thinking about that. If you're like me and you're like, never in any way should I be anywhere near a musical instrument or a microphone, uh, I would just ask you to pray because that's something that's been on the leadership uh, of this church's heart for a while. And uh, we would love to see um, God raise up some, some godly musicians. And we have an amazing team of vocalists already uh, to lead us in worship from this body. So that's the first announcement. The second one is this. It's not a big deal, but I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, we're taking some vacation this month. So uh, we have family in Tennessee. Um, actually, last year, my folks moved from Cleveland to Tennessee. So my folks are in the Knoxville area. Best folks are in the Nashville area. So we're going to go for several weeks to Tennessee, see a lot of family we haven't seen for a while. So I'll be gone for some weekends. We'll be gone for some weekends. Just didn't want you to freak out. Uh, you will be in very good hands uh, while we're gone. So with that, Let's get to actually what's important, and let's look at God's Word and, uh, and have a message from it today. Uh, Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to read from. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 22. I'll give you about 10 seconds to get there. Mark chapter 2, 
starting in verse 18 and going through 22. This is what it says. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came to him or people came and said to him, that's Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I hate winter. We're actually not, I'm actually, we're not supposed to use that word in my house. I strongly dislike winter. And uh, many of you know I grew up on the East Coast and in the Midwest. One of the greatest evidences of God's grace and goodness in my life is what winter has looked like over the last three years since he brought us to California. Yeah, hey, hey, you can, you can clap. That might be the best thing to clap for the whole way. Uh, it is amazing what the sunshine does. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to really strongly like a Midwest or an East Coast winter. Obviously, the bitter cold. It, it, it just, it's miserable. The, the months on end of gray, not seeing the sun for months, it, it's amazing what the sun does for us as human beings. M- maybe the worst thing for me about winter was how dirty it is. You see, when you get all this snow, and like native Californians, this is like, you just know this in your head, you haven't actually experienced it. Uh, Those of us who are transplants, you know this is gonna bring up some PTSD. When you get all this snow and ice that you get all winter long, they put down salt everywhere. Salt on the highways, salt in the parking lots, salt on the sidewalks, on the steps, and the entryways, and that salt over the course of the winter gets on everything. It gets all over your cars and is filthy. It gets all over your shoes and the bottoms of your pants and it is filthy. There's dirt and grime and muck everywhere by the time you get to the end of winter and I'm a little bit of a clean freak and so I hated it. I hated the salt in winter. If you parked your cars in the garage, it trashed your garage. And when we were living in Ohio, we had a nice big two-car garage and we parked both of our cars in that garage all winter long. And so every spring, when we knew that the snow was over, we had a faucet actually inside the garage and a drain in the middle of the garage floor. And so every spring when we knew winter was over, so that was like sometime around July, (laughs) I I would hook up a hose to that faucet and I would spray down the entire garage, pull out all the kids' toys, all the cars. Just, it was cathartic to just wash away four months of salt and grime and dirt. In the last year that we were living in Ohio, I went through this same routine, pulled out our cars, pulled out all the kids' stuff, hooked up a hose, started spraying down the garage, probably 30 minutes of spraying toys and cars and the garage floor. And for those of you native Californians who are horrified that I ran a hose for 30 minutes, it is not like it is here. 
We didn't see the sun for six months, but it was an embarrassment of riches when it came to water. Just water, water everywhere. So I sprayed down the garage, and, and as I was spraying, I had this thought of like, this water pressure doesn't feel like it normally has in the past. But I just didn't think anything of it. It had been a year since I'd done it the last time, so whatever. 30 minutes running that hose all over the garage. Finished up, left the garage door open for things to dry, went in through the laundry room, came in through the kitchen, and heard a noise coming from the basement that was not a familiar noise. It sounded like water. And as I bounded down the basement stairs, I was horrified to find a waterfall coming out of the basement ceiling. It wasn't supposed to be there. That wasn't like a a neat in-home kind of water thing. Um, And what you need to understand about our house in Ohio, and a lot of houses in Ohio, is they had big basements, not like most of the houses here, and it was finished. And so we had carpet, we had drywall, we had beadboard, we had an office, we had a guest room down there. Uh, The previous owners had wired it for surround sound. Our kids' toys were down there. There was a little exercise room. Excuse me, I just need a minute. (laughs) Okay, I'm, I'm good. And I came down to water everywhere, standing water on the floor. The walls were wet up to my waist. See, what had happened is over the winter, the pipe that ran to the garage had frozen with water in it, and it had burst the pipe. And when I turned on the faucet that spring morning, most of the water that was supposed to be going into my garage was pouring into my basement. The water was supposed to be contained in the pipe. And when it was contained in the pipe, it was no big deal. I could direct where it went, how it went, how hard, how far, how fast. But when it got out of the pipe, I lost control over the water. And it went everywhere. And it was so destructive. I can still feel the sinking feeling in my stomach as I went downstairs and saw that scene unfold in my basement. And my expectation is some of you here or watching online can commiserate in some way of walking into a situation that you realized you had no control over. Our stomach sinks in those situations because we like to feel like we're in control. We like things that we feel like we are in control of. We like when the water stays in the pipe. We like when the fire stays in the fireplace. We like it when we can go where we want, do what we want, when we want, and how we want. We like it when we're healthy and virus-free. We like it when life fits into little boxes that we can put away when we don't want and take out when we do. The converse is also true. We don't like it when we're not in control. We don't like it when the water comes out of the pipe. We don't like floods, whether they're in our neighborhood or in our basement. We don't like wildfires. We don't like it when we get sick. We don't like traffic jams. We don't like power outages because they remind us that we're not in control. We don't like it when life doesn't fit neatly and tidily into little boxes that we can put away and take out when we need it. But the problem is, as anyone who's done any amount of life knows, that is not how life works. Most of life does not fit into tidy little boxes that we can take out and put away when we don't need them. If anyone has ever had a real job, or any job, part-time job, you know that work does not stay in the box. Relationships, marriage, dating, or otherwise, they don't stay in the box. Parenting, it doesn't stay in the box. And you know what else doesn't fit neatly into little boxes? Jesus. 
It's church. You knew we were going there. Jesus does not fit into the boxes that we want to put him in. Now, we really want him to. We would love to have a Jesus who fit neatly and nicely into a box that we can pull out when we want him, open it up, ask for the things that we need, put him back, put him away when we don't need him and don't want him to come wherever it is that we're going. But Jesus does not fit neatly into the boxes that we try to put him in. We are continuing in our series in Mark, our deep dive into the gospel of Mark that we're calling Let's Go. And as this is what's neat about spending this much time in one book is we're getting to see the arc of the story. And so what we are seeing now in these last few weeks is Jesus has arrived, he's announced the kingdom of God is here, he's announced war on the kingdom of this world. He is doing the things that God does. He is forgiving sins, he is saving people, he is healing the, the sick, he is driving out demons. And remember last week, the insiders, the establishment, they're not too happy about it. And so they're starting to challenge him. And so we're in the third week of a passage that a why question hangs out in the middle of the text that we're looking at. Two weeks ago, it was why does Jesus say that he can forgive sins? Last week, it was why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And this week, the question is, why don't his disciples fast? And so here's what would have been really neat and really fun, I think, and a really easy way to preach this morning. I could have preached a sermon on fasting. What is fasting? Why to fast, how to fast. That last point would have been really easy. Don't eat. But here's the deal. This passage, which seems on its surface like it's about fasting, it's not about fasting. This passage is about expectations. This passage is about the expectations of the people who were seeing what Jesus was doing and who he was. And they were saying, you are not doing what we expect you to do. You are not acting in the way we expect you to act. You are not fitting into the box that we expect you to fit in. So we will preach a sermon on fasting another day, and that will be great. Today we're going to talk mostly about Jesus. I'm calling this sermon Hungry Expectations because the question about fasting was really getting at the underlying question, which is why aren't you doing the things that we expect you to do? We're going to learn three things about Jesus as we look at these verses that we're studying today. And the first one is this. Jesus is unexpected. Jesus is unexpected. Look with me back now at our text, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So I told you we weren't going to talk about fasting, but we're going to talk about fasting just for two minutes. Okay, so, so John is John the Baptist. He had some followers who were disciples and apparently they fasted regularly. Also the Pharisees, they fasted regularly. But here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God only commanded one time for his people to fast. There was only one day per year that God commanded his, his people, the nation of Israel to fast. It was the day of atonement. It was the one day a year that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the holiest of place, made a sacrifice to God to atone for the sins of the people. God said, on that day, all of Israel should fast. That's the only one he commanded. Now, over time, and we see it in the Old Testament, there were other times that his people fasted. There were other opportunities, mostly when they were preparing for something or when they were mourning or when they were in a season of prayer or discernment or seeking God, they would fast. But what is critical to recognize is those fasts were not commanded. And so by the time we get to Jesus, there is an association with those who are religious and devout with fasting. They did it regularly. And so they expected a rabbi or a teacher of the law and those who followed him would fast. So the disciples, or the, excuse me, rather, the Pharisees, they fasted two days every week. 
before it was cool. They weren't trying to kickstart their metabolism or get into a ketogenic state. They did it because it showed how religious they were. But again, that was tradition, not commandment. And so here comes Jesus, and he's got his disciples, and his disciples are not doing what everyone else is doing. And so the people come to him, and they ask him this question, why aren't your disciples falling in line? Why aren't they doing the status quo? Why aren't they doing what we expect them to do? Why aren't they fitting into the box that we expect them to go in? The reason they have to ask that is because Jesus is doing something that's unexpected. They expected him to fast. They expected his followers to fast. But he's not doing it because he's unexpected. And this is why so many in his time missed him. Because he wasn't what they expected. He didn't look like the Messiah they expected. They expected a Messiah who was going to come in power as a mighty king and raise up an army and overthrow the Roman oppressors and restore Israel to its former glory. Not a, not a, not a son of a carpenter from a no-name, ta- no-name town that no one had ever heard of who doesn't even fast like he should because Jesus is unexpected. Uh, there's a guy who lives here locally who some of you might be familiar with. Uh, his name is Stephen. Stephen Curry. He plays a game called basketball. Uh, he lost to the Cavs in the 2016 finals. Does that ring, does that ring a bell? Steph, Steph Curry is a transcendent basketball player. He is a consensus top five player in the NBA. He is one of the greatest point guards ever to play the game. He is arguably, and in my opinion, the greatest shooter ever to play the game of basketball. He has won three world championships. Twice he has been named the most valuable player of the NBA, which basically means you're the best basketball player in the world. I'm surprised I didn't get more amens on that. Do you know where Steph went to college? Do you know where most NBA players go to college? Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, UCLA, Michigan. Steph went to Davidson College. It is a small, private, liberal arts school outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Steph came out in 09. You know when the last NBA player was that came from Davidson College? 1983. Davidson is not an NBA powerhouse. Why did, they, why did Steph go to Davidson? Because nobody else wanted him. Because his senior year in high school, he was barely six feet and he was thin as a rail. He did not look like a basketball player. And I, arguably, he doesn't really look like a basketball player today. And because he didn't look the way the recruiters expected him to look, they passed him up. His assistant coach at Davidson said some people will just take one look at a guy and make a decision. And that's what happened with Steph. And he destroyed them when he got to the NCAA tournament. And he made them all look like fools for passing him up and for having to go to this little school called Davidson. And he is now literally one of the finest basketball players ever to live. But so many people missed it because he was not what, he, they, he was not what they expected. That's exactly what the people were doing with Jesus when he walked the earth. And it's what, it's what so many of us are doing today. We miss Jesus because he is not what we expect. And I think there are two big buckets that we see this happen in. One is the bucket we talked about last week. One is the bucket of, here's God, here's Jesus, God incarnate, King of kings, Lord of lords, holy, sinless, blameless, set apart. And when we really sit with ourselves and think about who we are 
and how messed up we are and how broken we are and how we just have different degrees of ability to hide it when we're in public. I think we're like, how could the God of the universe ever want anything to do with me? And yet here he is, as we saw last week, not just saying follow me, but inviting us to come to his table and commune with him in friendship. Not saying clean yourself up and then I'll see if you can be my friend. He's saying, come be my friend and I will clean you up. And for so many of us, that is too good to be true. It's not what we expect from a God who we think is going to just come down on us with fire and brimstone and, and send us to hell. But the opposite is true as well. I think there are a lot of people who have missed expectations of Jesus because they're like, here he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign over all. If I come to him, this is the ticket to health and wealth and the easy life. And then we come to Jesus and we actually find out that he calls us to not, to not live the overcoming life. He doesn't in one sense, not the American overcoming life. He calls us to die to ourselves, to sacrifice, to, to give up so that we might gain. And we're like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expected because Jesus is unexpected. Okay, so first thing, Jesus is unexpected. Second thing I want us to see in this passage is this. And this is kind of part of the unexpected. Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. These people come and ask him, why, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't? And Jesus responds with this little parable about a wedding. Verse 19, he says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here's what we need to know about weddings. First century Palestinian weddings. Normal Jewish wedding at the time of Jesus lasted seven days. That was for a new wedding. If it was a widow who was being remarried, it lasted three days. Can you imagine those conversations with the parents of the bride? Like, boy, I'm not sure we can do $50 a head for dinner that night. It's like, I'm not sure we can do $50 a head for three days, for th three meals a day se for seven days. It was a huge party. Seven days. And all that was required of the friends and the guests and the neighbors who were invited to that party was to party. All that was expected was that they would rejoice and celebrate the new couple and have a great time with each other. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm like the groom at a wedding. It is all about joy with me. He's saying fasting as you, as you normally do it is associated with mourning, with penance, with seeking forgiveness, with prayer, with seeking God's face. Nothing wrong with those in and of themselves, but they have no place at a wedding. He's saying, my presence is joy. Just as it would be totally incongruous and frankly offensive for the guests at a wedding to come with a somber and sad attitude and not eat the food that is put in front of them. For those who I am with, they should experience my joy because my presence is joy. Uh, I have three weddings that I'm doing this week. That's a, that's a first for me. Tis, yeah, amen. Tis, tis, tis the season, I guess. Uh, just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that I go to one of these weddings that I'm officiating this week. And imagine, suspend your disbelief, imagine it's the perfect wedding. Nothing goes wrong. The, the bride and the groom are perfect for each other. And everyone knows it. Uh, both sets of parents just totally approve and are ecstatic about this union. All of the friends and family know these two people were made for each other. 
the, the, the ceremony goes perfectly. The, the flowers are on time. The pastor just nails the message. The food is perfect. Nobody's feelings are hurt. There's no underlying tension. Just imagine that it is perfect. And I'm at the reception. And I don't really know anybody because it's not my family. And I see the table of groomsmen. And I'm like, here are some guys I can go talk football with, right? And so, so I head over to the table of groomsmen, the, 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 the groom's best friends at this wedding. And while everyone is just having the time of their lives, they are sitting there not talking to each other. Totally silent. The surf and turf and the twice-baked potatoes are sitting untouched on the plates in front of them. And imagine I asked them, like, guys, what's up? What's the deal? And imagine they answered like this. They're like, well, this has just been such a disappointing experience. This is, this is, this is not what we thought it would be. This has been, this has been a really hard thing. This is not what we expected it to be. Do you know what, what conclusion I would come to about those guys? They're imposters. They're, they're wedding crashers. They're not supposed to be there because surely these are not friends of the groom. Because if they were true friends of the groom, if they knew him and had gone to college with him and had worked with him and saw how happy he was in this moment, there is no way they could be acting the way that they are. And if I can just bring it a little bit closer to home, it's how a lot of us who call ourselves Christians are walking through this life. Jesus is joy. I know that's not what a lot of us think first when we think about Jesus, but he is joy. It's what he's saying in these verses. He's saying, when you have my presence, you cannot be sad because I am joy. And what God's word makes extremely abundantly clear is that for those of us who have bowed the knee, who have invited Jesus into our life to be king of our lives, he is with us all the time because his spirit comes and lives inside of us. And so if we are a follower of Jesus, our lives should be marked by joy. And my question is just, are they? And I'm like, I'm so convicted even as I say this because like 99% of my life can be perfect. And the 1% that isn't, I'm harping on. But God is like, it doesn't matter what's going on at work. It doesn't matter if you're not married to the perfect person that you thought you were going to be. It doesn't matter if your kids are not perfect. It doesn't matter if your house is not perfect. It doesn't matter if your basement is standing under two inches of water. You can still have joy because you have me with you wherever you go. I know a lot of us, when we think about the Christian life, whether we're Christians or not, joy is not the first word that comes to our mind. It is like duty, discipline, sacrifice, devotion, grit your teeth and bear it. And those are all part of it. But God is saying, Jesus is saying, my primary deal is joy. May we see him for that and may we walk in it. Jesus is unexpected, and part of what's unexpected about him is he's about joy. Jesus is about parties with tax collectors and sinners, and he's about seven-day weddings. Jesus is joy. Last thing is this. Jesus is destructive. Jesus is unexpected. Jesus is joy, and Jesus is destructive. And I know it's like there was a DJ, the, the record would screech to a halt, like, like, that's not church talk, Right? You haven't, you haven't heard a lot of sermons where the point was Jesus is destructive. But it is the, I, I, I've spent a lot of time with this text. It is the clear and plain meaning of the last two verses of this text, verses 21 and 22. 
I, I love this, and it's so Jesus, right? So they're, they're, he's not meeting their expectations. All these people are coming to him. They're like, why aren't you fitting in the box? Why aren't you doing the things that we expect you to do? Why don't you fast? They ask him a question about fasting, and Jesus responds by talking about sewing and wineskins. And it's like, all right, dude, that's not really, that's not really what we we're asking you about. But he's making a very clear point in this. If I could summarize verses 21 and 22 in three words, it would be this. I destroy things. That's not what you normally think about Jesus. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. You get that? These verses, like for years I read them and I'm like, what is this even about? But when you actually sit with it, it kind of becomes clear. So Jesus is saying, if you got holes in your jeans and they have already gone through the dryer because they're used and they've already been shrunk, if you put a new patch on that that hasn't been shrunken yet and you wear them and put them in the washing machine and then transfer them to the dryer, when that heat from the dryer hits it, that patch is going to shrink and it's going to what? It's going to pull away from the seams and it's not just going to leave you with the same hole you had, it's what? It's going to make a bigger hole. It's going to be more destroyed than it was. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. The way they, they did wine back in those days in Jesus' time is they would let it ferment in a, in a pot or a vat or whatever you want to call it. And then before it was done fermenting, they would put it into a, a skin, an animal skin made of leather. And a new skin would have been supple leather. And that wine continued to ferment as it sat in that skin. But the new skin that was supple would expand as the gases were produced by the fermenting wine. But over time, those wineskins, when they were used, they would become dry and brittle. And after they'd been expanded, there wasn't room for them to expand more. And so if you took accidentally, if you were a, a knucklehead winemaker, if you took new wine, and put it into old skins that had already been expanded and were already becoming dry and brittle, it would destroy it all. Because as that wine fermented and expanded, it would blow out that wine skin and the wine would come out everywhere. And Jesus is saying in these two verses, I'm the patch. I'm the new wine. I am the new thing that destroys the old. Your old expectations cannot contain me. Your old systems cannot contain me. Your old traditions cannot contain me. The boxes that you want to put me in cannot hold me. I will destroy every garment, every skin, every box that you think you can put me in because Jesus is destructive. This is why I started with the story I did about my poor basement in Ohio. Because that water is like the wine, is like the patch. That water is Jesus. And he couldn't be contained in the pipe. And when he gets out, he doesn't just go where you want him to go, go where I want him to go. He goes everywhere and gets all over everything. He's in the carpet and he's in the walls and he's in the toys and he's in the furniture. And that's what he does when he comes into our life. When he comes into our life, he doesn't just kind of stay in the box we want to put him in. He gets into our relationships. He gets into our marriage or our dating relationships. He gets into our parenting. He gets into our finances. He gets into our internet usage. He gets into our Netflix queue. He gets into our expense reports and our performance reviews. He gets into our free time because he doesn't just want a little piece of us. He wants all of us. 
And when he comes into your life and surveys the landscape, he's like, like a contractor looking at a house. He's like, this house is not going to hold me. And if I leave it as is, some things are going to be destroyed. And so I need to be proactive in doing some destruction as I'm coming in to inhabit your life, as I'm coming in to fill the wineskin of your life. It's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Thank God he doesn't fit in our boxes. Because if he did, he would be too small of a God that's a little g God who is made in our image that we can take out and put away and does only the things we want him to do. We need a big G God who bursts out of the boxes that we try and put him in because we need a big G God who can get rid of the old and make us into something new. When you think of the life of your the house of your life, when Jesus comes in and he's like, we got to tear this thing down. Initially, we're like, great. I got a lot of stuff in my past. I got a lot of anxiety and fear and garbage that I was really hoping you could help me with. And so he takes off the roof and he starts taking off the second floor and you're like, this is great. Thank you, Jesus. You're cleaning up a bunch of stuff. It's like those, we take junk away guys. But then he starts getting into the closets and you're like, I was hoping you wouldn't go in that closet. But he gets in there and he, he makes us see some things that, that we didn't want him to see. And then he gets down to the first floor and you're starting to be like, like, is there going to be anything left when you're done with this? And he just smiles and keeps tearing, tearing things out. And it hurts. It hurts when Jesus destroys the old. And then he gets into the basement. And we're like, please, Jesus, don't go in the basement. We don't want you down there. There's stuff down there I don't want to see. There's definitely stuff down there we don't want you to see. And he cleans out the basement. And then he gets down to the foundation of your life. And it hurts. And you're like, you're like Jesus, please leave the foundation. Don't take my health. Don't take my reputation. Don't take my money. And all the while you're saying this to him, he's drilling holes in the cement and putting dynamite sticks in it because he's like, if I'm going to come live in this house, you can't, you can't build it on this foundation. I have to be the foundation. And so I got to destroy it all so that we can rebuild it into a wineskin that will not burst when my spirit enters in. Jesus is destructive. And can we praise him for that? Because we don't want the old. We need the new. Uh, one verse I kind of skipped over in this passage, you may have noticed if you're astute. And I don't believe in preaching, you have to touch every verse, but sometimes it's neat to. Uh, verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, my disciples aren't fasting because the bridegroom is with them. But then he says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. It would have been really strange in those days, really unheard of, for a groom to be forcibly removed from his own wedding. And that, yet that's exactly what Jesus says about himself. And we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know that not long after this, because of the claims Jesus was made, because of the things he was doing, the insiders, the establishment, the religious leaders of the day were so unhappy with what he was doing. They were so unhappy with the destruction he was causing in the old way that they forcibly removed him from his wedding party, hung him up on a cross, and killed him. And when they took him down from that cross, where did they put him? 
in a box. I mean, not really a box. We go in boxes today. It was a tomb. It was a cave. It was a grave. And they thought that he could be contained in that grave. And don't miss, that physical grave is a representation of what was happening spiritually because the forces of evil thought that they could contain Jesus in a box they called death. But church, the boxes we try and put Jesus in does, do not hold him. The grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Because three days later, he burst forth out of that grave. And in doing so, he destroyed the old and ushered in the new. Jesus cannot be held in the boxes that we tried to put him in. And can we thank God for that? The promise. The promise for all who will say, Jesus, come in and make me new, is that he will do it. And he will take the old garment, the old wineskin of your life, and replace it with the new and fill it with himself such that the box of the grave and death cannot hold you either. Jesus is unexpected. Jesus is joy. And Jesus is destructive. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that every time we turn to your word, we are encouraged and blessed and reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. And we praise you that as, as Tim Keller says, you see us as is, you love us as is, you accept us as, if, as is, but you do not leave us as is. God, for those of us who have been walking with you for a little while, we ask that you would continue to do your work of dismantling the old and building us up into something that is new. And God, for those who may not know you, who are watching today, I pray, God, or listening today, I pray that you would make them know that the, the, the promise of your gospel is not too good to be true. As unexpected as it is, it is real and it is glorious. We ask that you would meet with someone today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to transition into a time of communion. Um... This is the moment once a month where we celebrate our unity as a body and we remember what we just talked about, which is Jesus Christ's death and resurrection from the cross. That death that he died in your place and mine such that we would not have to experience it, but can look forward to eternity in paradise and in God's presence. If you are not a follower of Jesus, scripture is clear that this, uh, this, Remembrance is reserved for those who have made Jesus Christ Lord and King of their lives. So if that's you, please prepare to take the elements with us. But if it's, if it's not you, there's no better time than now to make the decision to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. We would love to talk to you about how to do that. Please feel free to reach out to us. Info at ALCF.net. If you have prayer needs, prayer at ALCF.net. Or find myself or one of our elders or ministry leaders outside the church after service today. We're just going to get quiet for a few moments and silently uh, prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. If you have the prepackaged elements, I would start trying to open it now, and I'll lead us in just a minute.
Let's stand. Please get ready with the bread. And hear these words from Scripture. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And now the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Galatians 2.20 tells us, Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, speaking for himself but speaking for all for whom Jesus is the Lord of their life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. He doesn't say I have been gently dismantled by Christ. Crucifixion uh, is arguably the worst possible way humanity has invented to die. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it is Christ that lives in me. May we praise him for that. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved you are prayed for, and you are sent.